This week's scripture is from 1 Kings, chapter 17, verses 1 through 16. Elijah from Tishbe, who was one of the settlers in Gilead, said to Ahab, As surely as the Lord lives, Israel's God, the one I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain these years unless I say so. Then the Lord's word came to Elijah, Go from here and turn east. Hide by the Cherith brook that faces the Jordan River. You can drink from the brook. I have also ordered the ravens to provide for you there. Elijah went and did just what the Lord said. He stayed by the Cherith brook that faced the Jordan River. The ravens brought bread and meat in the mornings and evenings. He drank from the Cherith brook. After a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. The Lord's word came to Elijah, Get up, and go to Zarephath, near Sidon, and stay there. I have ordered a widow there to take care of you. Elijah left and went to Zarephath. As he came to the town gate, he saw a widow collecting sticks. He called out to her, Please, Get a little water for me in this cup so I can drink. She went to get some water. He then said to her, Please, get me a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any food, only a handful of flour in a jar and a bit of oil in a bottle. Look at me. I'm collecting two sticks so that I can make some food for myself and my son. We'll eat the last of the food and then die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go and do what you said. Only make a little loaf of bread for me first. Then bring it to me. You can make something for yourself and your son after that. This is what Israel's God, the Lord, says. The jar of flour won't decrease, and the bottle of oil won't run out until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. The widow went and did what Elijah said. So the widow, Elijah, and the widow's household ate for many days. The jar of flour didn't decrease, nor did the bottle of oil run out, just as the Lord, as the Lord spoke through Elijah. Here ends the reading. Recently I've been watching with my wife uh, a TV show, called Unsolved Mysteries. We were, of course, both of us, huge fans of the original Unsolved Mysteries, which was on the on the air in the 80s and 90s. And growing up, we would watch it and to see all of the strange things in the world that had not been not been solved, all kinds of things. But in this most recent series, in the second season, there's an episode that takes place in Japan. And it's about a man named Kaneta Taio, the abbot of Tsutaiji Temple, which is a temple in the Miyagi Prefecture in the, that is in the Soto Zen tradition. Miyagi Prefecture, um, I'm sure after which uh, Mr. Miyagi in, <laughs> in Karate Kid was named, um, Miyagi Prefecture is in northern Japan, north of Tokyo, in a region called the Tohoku region. 
And this is the region that was hit so badly by the 2011 earthquake and the tsunami that followed it, the largest earthquake on record in Japan. The tsunami came several miles inland, and 16,000 people died in the tsunami, and more than 2,500 are still missing, even though it's been almost 10 years since it occurred. After this tragedy, uh, the abbot realized that where he was located, which had not itself been directly uh, in, the, in the path of the tsunami, was near enough to offer support to those who were, um, who were trying to rebuild and, and grieve their losses. Many people began to come to him who had been affected by the tragedy, and he would sit with them and, and provide the normal Buddhist literature, uh, 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 liturgies that he had, he had learned and practiced for so many years. But he found that these were not as helpful for them as he thought. And especially, uh, you know, in, in Japan, all funerals are cremations. And they didn't have enough crematoriums um, to, to, to cremate all of the bodies. And so they would bury them uh, temporarily. And then when they were able to, they would, they would dig them back up and then they would cremate them uh, as there was available um, space in the crematoriums that were operating. And he would go to these funerals to, to help, you know, to, to provide the funeral ritual and to, to help the grieving families. And he noticed that people were not crying at the, at the funerals. Uh, normally at a, at a regular funeral, of course, people would be crying and, and be upset about, you know, going through grief. But because of the, the suddenness of what had happened, people were just in shock. And they didn't know how to respond. They didn't know how, how to be, how to go on living after such a loss. Whole towns just completely destroyed, everyone dead. And so he realized there was a need for this in the community, for, for people to talk about what they were feeling and to work through those feelings. And so he began to sit with people and pray with them and talk to them. And he, along with the help of a Christian priest from the same area, got together and started a cafe where people could come and sit and talk to the priests and try to regain some sense of normalcy in their lives. And he talks about, and when interviewed about this, he, he talks about how As a, as a priest, as someone who has studied religion for, in, in his case, probably his whole life, because generally the abbots of temples in Japan are often um, the sons of the previous abbots. So usually you're raised in the temple. Um, the, the Buddhist priests in Japan are allowed to marry and have children. And, and so a lot of them um, have a family that lives at the temple. And then when their son grows up, they become the abbot and so on and so forth. So likely he, he grew up in the temple and, and was trained to be an abbot from very young. And so he, he knows Zen Buddhism very well. But what he found is that it wasn't helpful to people for him to talk about Zen Buddhism. You know, if someone came to him, there was an example where someone came to him and asked, 
about, about their son. Let me read the actual quote here. A woman became suicidal after her two-and-a-half-year-old son died in the tsunami. She cut her wrists several times and ended up in the hospital. She and her husband actively sought support from the abbot, with the woman asking, Where has my son gone? Where is he now? Instead of offering some long explanation of the Buddhist understanding of the intermediate state between death and rebirth, he listened and waited to answer. Eventually, he responded with his own question to her. Where do you want him to go? And then he waited more, and she said, A place of light where there are many flowers. She ended up drawing a painting of her vision, which resembled a lotus field, like those recounted in Amida Buddha's Pure Land, where many Buddhists vowed to go after death. The abbot concluded that many thoughts may arise in himself in such a process, but by waiting without giving voice to all these thoughts, space is created and a, and a process begins to unfold. So he did this thing that is very unusual in his tradition. And in the U.S., we, all, we have this idea of... of um, interfaith chaplains, especially in hospital work and in uh, military chaplaincy. But in Japan, this is almost unheard of. Uh, and it's, a, it's a, a field that is only now being, being looked into. Uh, and, and, and perhaps, uh, perhaps ironically, perhaps um, by the blessings of God, one of the places where they're working on that is at Tohoku University. Um, so this, this priest, the Christian priest, had come from from the, pro the program at Tohoku University nearby. So they started this, this cafe, and they had people come in, and they would have massages, and they would play games, and they would drink coffee, and they would talk. And this really helped people work through their, their problems. Of course, this isn't what the Unsolved Mysteries is talking about, because this isn't very mysterious so far. The Unsolved Mysteries is talking about stories of ghost sightings in the area and about um, possession by spirits. The abbot has also received many people after the tsunami who claim to be possessed by spirits, and he works with them. As he describes it, it's very unorthodox. People people who are uh, who are his, uh, his Buddhist... Um, colleagues may find it odd that he does this thing, but he sits with these people and just talks with them, sometimes for five or six hours at a time, talking to them and trying to understand their story and trying to understand what's going on and trying to find a way for them to work through what they're going through. And he says, it doesn't matter if you believe in possession or not. The point is that these are people who are hurting and it's his job to help them work through their pain. He said, even though some people might find it unorthodox, he thinks there are no gods who would be upset with what he's doing. <laughs> there are no gods who would be upset with relieving the pain of those who are suffering. Our text this week picks up from where we left off last week, but it moves far ahead. This, this lectionary we're using, the narrative lectionary that tells these stories of the Bible in chronological order, kind of jumps around in this, in this section. 
of the Bible. So now we're in the book of Kings, which is a book of history about the the kings of the two kingdoms. So if you remember last time, there was um, Samuel, the prophet, and Samuel made Saul king, and then um, then instead made David, anointed, anointed David to be king. And David becomes the king of the combined uh, kingdoms uh, of what would later be Israel and Judah. And his son Solomon then reigns after him and builds the temple, uh, the the temple in Jerusalem. Now, when Solomon dies, the kingdom is split by war. His Solomon's son becomes the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, um, which contains the lands of, of Judah and Benjamin. And the other ten tribes uh, are part of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom of Israel has several kings, none, none of which are descendants of Solomon or David. So they don't come from the Davidic line. They come from uh, a different line uh, of people. And so this text goes back and forth talking about these kings, and it goes through several of them kind of very shortly until it comes to this story of Elijah uh, and uh, King Ahab. So as things go on, the northern kingdom drifts farther and farther away from the worship of Yahweh. Not They don't stop worshiping Yahweh, but they begin to worship other gods as well. And when Ahab becomes king, he marries a woman named Jezebel, um, which, of course, Jezebel is a, has become kind of a famous word in English that refers to a specific kind of woman, a woman who acts in particular ways. Um, but that comes from this, from this biblical account, specifically about how Jezebel reacts to Elijah uh, later. But anyway, Jezebel is a Baal worshiper, so she is not she is not an Israelite, uh, and she and she and her family worship Baal, and or Baal depending on how you pronounce it. And Baal is the a regional god of um, storms and and lightning. Um, he's kind of the uh, you know I think a lot of a lot of religious traditions, uh, polytheistic religious traditions have kind of a storm god, right? We have Zeus in the Greek tradition, um, we have Thor in the in in the Norse tradition. So, Baal is the storm god, and Baal is important because Baal brings the rain. And there is a a, a cult of um, a fertility cult built around Baal that has to do with the the cycles of harvesting and and of planting and harvesting. So Baal is worshipped. Um, so that the rains come, so that the the plants grow, so the harvest can be done, and and there's this there's this uh, religious practice of cult prostitution that has to do with um, with uh, pregnancy and having that be or not not pregnancy but but sexual intercourse and having that be kind of a uh, an allegory to uh, planting seeds and having the world the world become green and grow again and all of this kind of wraps up together and, th- and this whole uh, tradition is something that is spoken against by many of the prophets of this time, uh, including Elijah. Now, we get no previous description of Elijah before this text. There's, there's no backstory. There's no idea where he comes from. But just one day, God says to Elijah, you know, go to Ahab and tell him that until I say so, there will be no rain and there will be no dew. 
And the reason why they say no dew is that there are periods of time in this area where rain was very, very rare, but there would be dew in the morning, and the dew would be used to, to water the plants and things. So this is in direct contradiction to the, the, the Baal worshippers who believe that Baal brings the rain. And so God is sending a message um, through Elijah to uh, king Ahab, the, the king of, Is- of the northern kingdom of Israel, saying, you've drifted away from my path. You, you know, your, your wife is worshiping false gods. Uh, to show you I'm right, I'm going to, to stop the rain, which is the thing that, they be- that she believes her god is in charge of until I say so. And after the story read today, there's a, um, there's a confrontation between Elijah and the priests of Baal, uh, that results in Elijah kind of demonstrating God's power to bring the rains. So after Elijah tells uh, tells Ahab what God told him to say, God tells Elijah to, to flee, <laughs> to, to flee and run away into the wilderness um, and to live on food that will be brought to him every day by crows and to drink water from this particular river. And he does this for a long time, probably many months, because the the... The drought goes on for many months. And then eventually the water dries up in the river because of the drought, because there's been no rain. And so then God comes to him uh, and tells him to go to uh, Zarephath and to seek help from a widow there. Now this is, this city, Zarephath, Zar- Zar- Zarephath, yeah, that's it. Zarephath is is not an Israelite city. This this is a city of people who are who all are in the the uh, cultural group who worship Baal. So this is he's going into a you know, God is sending Elijah into a city where the people worship the very God that Elijah is speaking out against. But God tells Elijah there will be a widow there who will take care of you, and so. When Elijah shows up at the gates of the city, he sees a widow collecting sticks, and he goes up to her and asks her for some water. And again, water is very uh, sparse right now because they're in a drought, but she gives him some water. So that's kind of the, the pa- she kind of passes the first test there. And then he tests her again by asking her for some bread. And that's when she tells him, look, look you know, I swear by your God that that I have no bread. I, I'm collecting these sticks. I have just enough to make one more loaf for my son and I. And then after we eat that, we're just going to die because we have nothing left to eat and there's no water. And Elijah says to her, do this, you know, take, take what you've got and make me a loaf of bread. And then when you go back to make more, you'll find that the jar of flour and the uh, the bottle of oil have not run out. And sure enough, if you continue to do that, if you, if you continue to help, you know, to, to help me, you'll, those will not run out until the water comes, until the rain comes again and the drought is ended. And so she has faith and she goes and does this. She makes him a loaf and brings it to him. And then she goes back and she sees that she does have enough flour and enough oil to make it, to make another loaf for her and her family and her household. And this continues. Every day when she goes back to make more bread, she sees that there's still enough flour and there's still enough oil to make another loaf of bread. And this, she's able to feed herself and Elijah and all of her household uh, until the drought is finally lifted. 
So what is the story of this? I, I have to, to admit that <laughs> when I saw this reading, first of all, I, I couldn't remember what it was off the top of my head. When <laughs> I just read the section, I read just the, 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 you know, the chapter and verse. I couldn't remember what story this was. And when I looked it up and read the story, I really thought for a while about what the message was in, out of the story, because, um, it's coming from what we just read. It's kind of a random story. And even our, our Bible study guide this week doesn't seem to have a really good point to like, there's no like one point they put on the story. They're, they just kind of go over it and they're like, yeah, this is an interesting story. We should, you know, let's move on. So, <laughs> so I took me a while to ponder on it, but, but this is what I have to say about it after, after I thought about it and prayed about it for a while. And um, I think what's amazing about this story is the part where God sends Elijah, who is a devout prophet of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, the, who uh, is the one God, to a land that is not his own, a foreign land where they worship foreign gods and says, there will be somebody there who will take care of you. And this widow, who is not an Israelite, who does not worship Yahweh, who worships other gods takes him in and takes care of him and has faith in him and, and has faith in his God and, and does what he says and is able to, and because of that, they're all able to prosper and they're all able to, to live on and, and, and do well. You know, there, there are a lot of stories in the Bible like this, the, they're kind of glossed over sometimes. I think there, there's a couple where, that are really obvious. Um, you know, Jesus is, is good about, kind of putting stuff right in your face. And, um, and there's, there's a couple uh, of stories, especially uh, my favorite parable of, of Jesus. Well, one of my two favorite parables of Jesus, which is uh, the, the parable of the good Samaritan, which is, you know, uh, someone asked Jesus, what's, you know, what, uh, what does the law say we should do? And Jesus says, well, you should love God and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And the person follows up, but who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, of this this Israelite man who's traveling along the road and is beset by thieves and injured and is lying, dying in the road. And these these this priest comes by, but crosses the road and doesn't want to doesn't want to deal with him at all. And then this really religious person comes by, and they don't want to deal with him at all. And then a Samaritan comes by, and a Samar- Samaria is in the northern kingdom. So this is you know the story of Jesus is happening hundreds of years later, but it's there, even in Jesus's time, there's still this division between the Northern kingdom and the Southern kingdom. And Samaria is in the Northern kingdom and they worship God, but they worship in a different way and they worship at a different place and they have slightly different beliefs. It's a slightly different version. It would be very similar, I think, to, um, in, in modern day to maybe Jews and Christians or, uh, Christians and, and Muslims or Jews and Muslims, I mean, any of those three groups. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. It, a good a good way to think about the the parable of the Good Samaritan would be, you know, the, the parable of the Good Muslim, of, you know, the, the, someone is, is, on the, is on the road and is, is um, robbed and stabbed and is laying in the, on the road dying, and, you know, the, the, pre, the priest walks by and, and kind of doesn't look, and, you know, the, the religious... Um, the, the, you know, I don't know, the, the president of the church board, <laughs> you know, 
walks by and doesn't and doesn't do anything. But uh, you know, the the Muslim who's coming by stops and helps the man and pays for his uh, for his uh, hospital stay and all this kind of stuff. That that would be kind of a translation of the story into modern times, and it would be very apt, right? And Jesus is saying, you know, you you can't discount the good uh, works of people who believe things different than what you believe. God can still work through people who are different than you. God can still work through through others who don't share your beliefs. You know, Elijah did not meet with the woman and begin to ask her theological questions about the nature of God and how we how we are saved and and how one how one obtains salvation and and you know what was the what is the the meaning of the messiah and and you know whatever he didn't ask her that he asked her for water and when she gave him water he asked her for bread two things that he knew would be difficult for her to give and when she her complaint was not you can't have any bread but i'm sorry i just don't have enough to share with you he said, well, what if you do this? And she had faith. And that was how he knew that he could trust her. Not, by, not through her words, but through her actions. And the way that she came to know him was not through his words, but through his actions. You know, we don't, we don't know from the story if she converted to, to you know, uh, worshiping Yahweh or not. Um, given that in the next story after this, uh, Elijah brings back her son from the dead. Yeah, I think it's highly likely, <laughs> given the circumstances, that that she at least also worshipped Yahweh in addition to whatever god she was worshiping. But the point is that it, Elijah didn't approach her with the it, with the goal of converting her to his belief system. He approached her and saw if she was a godly person, if she behaved in a godly way. much like the Buddhist monk behaved in a godly way, did God's work in, in his community, whether he actually believes in God or any gods at all, or if he believes in, in Jesus, or which I mean, he probably doesn't because he's a, he's a Buddhist, he's a Buddhist priest, isn't really important. He, he was doing the work of God either way. He was a godly person. He was behaving in a way that shows that um, he exhibits those those qualities that we look for in people who are godly people. You know, I've heard a lot of people um, in the Christian community and even in the Christian Universalist community talk about the dangers of other religions and the dangers of a kind of multi-religious, pluralistic universalism this idea that all paths lead to the same place you know as as christian universalists we believe that all people and indeed all of creation will eventually be reconciled to god and we can see this this universalism this idea that there is one god and the and the one god is over all people even in elijah even in the story in the old testament where elijah Elijah doesn't question when God says, go to this place and find this woman. Elijah, does, Elijah doesn't ask the woman, what God do you worship? Elijah 
has faith in God and, and goes and finds the woman and finds that the woman is, is trustworthy and godly and, and trusts her and stays with her and she has faith and they all do well. So I think, you know, as far as this question of plural, pluralistic universalism goes, I think there are two possible truths. There, there, are two, there are two things, one of which is true and the other, the other of which is false. Probably. Either all religious paths lead towards reconciliation with God through their own systems of belief and, and practice. Or the only way, way to reconcile with God is through a belief in Jesus Christ. And it's, it's got to be one of those two things, right? If the first one is true, that all religious traditions lead toward reconciliation with God, then people will learn to better themselves in their own traditions. Their traditions will have some degree of rightness or wrongness about how one should, should behave in the big picture. And after they die, God will show them what mistakes they've made, will show them the error of their ways and whatever whatever way those errors are, will help them to overcome those those problems and eventually to be reconciled with God. If the second is true, then after they die, God will show them about Jesus. God will say, will make them understand that, that the only way to reconciliation is through belief in Jesus. And they will eventually accept Jesus and they will then be shown the errors of their ways and any mistakes they made and God will help them to overcome that and they'll be reconciled to God. Because we believe that, that God endeavors, wishes all people to be reconciled to God and we believe that God is capable of doing that. And if we believe both those things, which is the core of universalism, of Christian universalism, then regardless of which one of the other of those bits we believe about whether there's all paths lead to God or whether only uh, a, only a belief in Jesus Christ leads to reconciliation, either way, all people are still saved. It just depends on a, the degree, I guess. <laughs> depends on how much work they have to do after they die how long it takes, but it doesn't change the final outcome. So really, really, if we really believe in Christian universalism, then it doesn't matter whether all paths lead to reconciliation with God or only Jesus Christ leads to reconciliation with God because it'll all happen eventually either way. And so there should be no difference in our behavior towards others of other faith traditions. There should be no difference. Certainly, it's an important matter of personal faith. It's important that you and that I, as part of our personal faith journey, understand which of those truths we believe is true based on the Bible, based on our traditions, based on our own, um, our own thoughts and, and rationality, however we, however we come to that belief. It's important that we understand which of those we believe in. 
but that should not change the way we act towards other people. You know, Jesus didn't say only be good to those who believe the same way you do. In fact, Jesus said exactly the opposite. And surely, you know, Elijah believed that Yahweh was the only God. God. I mean, this is this is made extremely clear in the in the passages that follow this. Elijah believes that Baal is not a god. Elijah believes that the people are are mistakenly worshiping an idol because there is only one God, Yahweh. And so surely he understands that this woman is, you know, worships Baal. He understands that that in in his his way of thinking she is worshiping an idol, but he doesn't he doesn't scold her for it. He doesn't immediately try to correct her and tell her she's wrong. Instead, he shows her through his actions what it's like to have faith in God. And she is is converted, perhaps. Her heart is turned towards God because of his actions and because of his faith. Not because of what he said, not because of the arguments he made, not because he gave her a pamphlet on salvation. Right? That is the amazing part of this story. That is where we find universalism in the story of Elijah. Amen.